Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, coming to you from my improvised dining table studio in the lockdown capital. That's locked down capital, as in Canberra, rather than the oft-referred-to lockdown capital, which, of course, is Melbourne. Anyway, suffice it to say, we're all thoroughly sick of it. But remember. Even that's not true because mostly we're not sick of it, which is the whole point of lockdowns really, to keep us safe until we can mingle again without some of us getting sick and dying, perhaps thousands a day. It's that serious and a bunch of high-vis, low-insight angry men doesn't change that. Indeed, losing patience when we're eight-tenths of the way through is no excuse for turning Trumpist libertarian and starting to wreck the joint. Bill Shorten probably had it right when he called many of the protesters in Melbourne last week man-babies. This was a tantrum by people claiming to be disproportionately wronged. But how is their plight worse than others? On the contrary, it ignored the sacrifice of the majority and blithely dismissed the community-wide effort to work together to get past this threat. Their claims to be defending the core principles of freedom and democracy sound all very honourable, but show me the instances of these same people going to the barricades to defend freedoms for others. Think of asylum seekers or perhaps same-sex couples, constitutional recognition for First Nations peoples, the interests of the homeless. No, this was selfishness mixed with delusion, mixed with toxic masculinity. But we should remember it was a minority, presumably the same people that would have campaigned against wartime rationing and blackout curtains. Frankly, this period has given me a deeper appreciation for the generations that lived through the war, enduring far greater deprivations, and probably for far longer. Anyway, that's what I think. But what does Australia think? Someone who studies that, who tests Australian attitudes over the long term, is my colleague, Professor Matthew Gray, who is the director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods, and who thus heads up a series called What Australia Thinks. Matthew Gray, welcome again to Democracy Sausage. Thank you, Mark. 
Now, let's talk about this, uh, what Australia thinks. Uh, for those unfamiliar with it, let's you know, start at the, at the beginning, I guess. What is it? How is it done? And what's the value of long-term survey series such, these, such as these? So the idea of what Australia thinks is to make um, the data from uh, social attitude surveys and uh, public opinion polling uh, really accessible and available to people who are not specialists, people who are working outside of universities, um, who are you know, intelligent people, well-read, you know, thoughtful, but you know who may not go in and actually get hold of um, you know, obscure academic papers or and get the data themselves and analyse it. So it tries to make the, the data available, and it it builds upon. Um, uh, we've started with three long-running surveys: um, the Australian Election Study, uh, which I featured on this uh, podcast before, uh, the ANU Poll, and World the World Values Survey, which has been uh, for many years now collecting data across many countries and enabling us to compare social attitudes in Australia with other countries and as well as over time in Australia. Yeah, so that's really interesting. It, it actually brings together, uh, in a sense, different data sets and, and some of that is very specifically Australian but some of it is also international. So that allows for, you know, rich, I guess, multi-perspective data or multi-factual data but it also allows for those comparative analyses with with uh, international uh, databases. Yeah, and th- these surveys go back quite a number of years now. They have they they really help us to understand something about what what people in the country think, uh, how their attitudes are changing over time, how that affects their behaviour, and it's on things that can really matter, like whether people have trust in government or confidence in democracy as an institution. It gives attitudes on things like uh, same sex marriage or constitutional recognition on climate change, on income inequality. But also it can also give data that is really relevant to a point in time, like what has the impact of COVID been? Yeah, that's very interesting. And so uh, you mentioned uh, some of the data being gathered over a long period of time. Uh, A survey like the Australian Election Study has been going for quite some time now, hasn't it? I think it's the oldest running continuous study of Australian elections. So that's really uh, provides excellent sort of basis for longitudinal assessment of what is going on, what's shifting, what is changing. You match that against, for example, demographic changes, uh, geographical distribution and a number of other things, and you can find some really interesting trends in Australian society. And we tend to think what's happening at the moment is exceptional and very different than anything's happened in the past. Yeah, that's the vanity of now. (laughs) And it's true that COVID is pretty unique, certainly within um, (laughs) lifetimes of people who've lived in Australia. But there have been other periods of crisis, economic crises. In many ways, um, one of the things that is becoming apparent is that I don't want to minimise the economic effects of COVID. But if you go back and look at the recession of the early 90s, um, arguably that's had a a bigger effect on um, people's um, living standards in many ways than what's happening at the moment with COVID. So it is important to put it in perspective and then to look at what happened with the dismissal of the um, uh, Whitlam government. What were the levels of uh, confidence in um, uh, the idea of democracy in the mid-70s at at that sort of point of crisis compared to what's been happening in Australia over the last four or five years or even... uh, with COVID. Yeah, if we think back even uh, more like a dozen years ago to the, the global financial crisis, the Great Recession as it's called in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, it ended up being a bit of a paper crisis in Australia because of some, some very front-footed activity 
by the, the the Rudd government at the time in terms of stimulus and and the actions taken by both the government and the Reserve Bank to you know protect the economy and you know bank guarantees and the like. But f- for Australians at that time, and I know you're an economist, for Australians at the time. There was a lot of talk about, like at the in in the media frame, there was an extraordinary amount of talk about the global financial crisis. But for many people on the ground, unlike the recession of the nineteen nineties, as you say, there wasn't this massive spike in unemployment. Uh, housing actually became cheaper. Interest rates went down. You know, uh, there was cash uh, incentives. Uh, you know, money paid as stimulus to to people and and the like. So it's interesting. You can make some assumptions about what people think at those moments. But the value of these surveys, it seems, is that we actually get to find out what they do think rather than, you know, a bunch of people like like you and me or particularly me as a, as a former journalist, you know, kind of, you know, making educated guesses. Yeah, and they, they talk about the, you know, the echo chamber, don't they? And it's true. <laughs> I mean, we, we're influenced by the people you know, around us and we tend to you know, listen yeah. to people who have similar views. And one of the real concerns about something like COVID was that it could lead to a loss of social cohesion and trust. And if that happens, you can see what happens in countries where that has happened. The US would be one example of that, um, you know, the UK to some degree, I think. Um, but in Australia, when we've been tracking, we find that confidence in government is pretty high, really, and it's gone up. You, know, you could see it drop during the bushfire period, um, but it, it is, it's high. Um, it goes up and down a bit, so it comes down a little bit at the moment with um, the third wave and concerns about vaccine rollout. But social cohesion, social trust, in fact, has um, gone up during the COVID period. I mean, that has been really critical. And in your introduction, you talked about how in many ways we've done much of the hard work in protecting Australia. You know, vaccine rates, I've lost track of exactly what they are, but I think first vaccine rates are getting quite high now and you follow through, people have got pretty high vaccination rates. So in order to maintain, to see the course through, because we're so close now to having vaccination rates at which um, you know, the health consequences will be much reduced, it does really require that, that trust and confidence and social cohesion. I mean, that's why you know, those um, riots and violence in Melbourne is a, is a real challenge. Um, but again, if you, if you look at... You, if you watch the news on that, you know, you'd say, oh, Australians are really up in arms about this. But what this um, sort of um, long-term tracking data shows that actually Australians are pretty supportive of the measures that have been taken on the whole. And we do know that things like trust in government and social cohesion and trust in your fellow citizens and the people will act in good faith and in best interest is a strong predictor of being vaccinated. Um, when people start to lose trust, then they will lose trust in vaccination as well. Because they're losing trust, in a sense, in information. They're losing a trust in expertise. They're losing trust in in their political leaders. And that, if you put all those things together, that's fertile ground for believing other information, false information, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, do-your-own-research types on the internet. Absolutely. Uh, all that stuff. You know, and getting the Pfizer vaccine is an act of faith in a way. It's a totally new technology, developed quickly. So you have to have trust in the, yeah. you know, the, 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 the vaccine developers of um, the regulators, the expertise, mm. and the regulators and the government, and mm. you know, and when you get the vaccine stuck in your arm, that it actually is 
what it's supposed to be. You know, it's not it's not some sort of um, Bill Gates uh, conspiracy. Bill Gates conspiracy, you know, or a corrupt company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, being paid. So I think that it, it is important, and we know from the evidence from previous pandemics around the world um, and, and uh, epidemics that for young people who are exposed to um, you know, epidemics that they uh, have a long-term effect on their belief in democracy and confidence in society. And that is actually one of the long-term risks of COVID and what's going on is for young people. And there is some evidence um, from our tracking surveys but also from other surveys that young people are being disproportionately affected both economically but in terms of mental health, schooling uh, and so forth. And Monitoring what's going on around their views about government, about society, um, is is really crucial. Um, and, of course, the information can be used to help inform public policy development um, and the way in which things are communicated and so on, and that, that really does matter for the future. Yeah, the framing of it, the design of policy and then the framing of the, the communication of it is important. And it's interesting, this this thing about trust, because uh, there's a couple of dimensions to it. I want to come back to that that young person aspect of it in a sec. But just staying with the, the broad for a moment, it is interesting, isn't it, that we saw trust kind of recover quite strongly. It spiked really through 2020 when governments were introducing measures that we thought, you know, that, that were assumed to be completely beyond the uh, the pale, sort of unthinkable outside of a wartime situation. But there was a mutual recognition between the people, what I would call the represented and the representatives. They were all listening to the experts. We all became familiar with a lot of uh, you know leading epidemiologists in this country. And we understood the basis of the policy, right? So we understood the notion of social distancing, of eventually of mask wearing, of of hand hygiene, of of essentially separating to give the you know stop giving the virus the the bridge it needed to communicate from to travel from one person to the next. So there was a there was an underlying rationale, but there was also trust that government was that governments in Australia were you know notoriously sort of known for for bickering between the state and federal levels of government that. All of that seemed to come together to address this common threat and we saw public confidence levels in government go up. Contrast that, and I think you touched on this before, contrast that with 2021, which has been more noted for the, you know, the cracks in the federation, the competition between the states, the failure of the vaccine procurement program to be sort of front-footed initially and so really the story of 2021 in terms of the vaccine rollout even though it's now starting to reach some as you say some critical mass it really is the story of a very limited supply uh, for which the federal government had you know had responsibility not that it's necessarily taken it um, and and we've seen trust sort of uh, pull back again so you can you can you can really understand you can really see the mechanics of all of this, you know, the relationship between people and their governments and and the kind of factual base. You can see it all working. You certainly can. And what, one of the things that comes out of the uh, monitoring surveys we're doing is because for at least some of them we're following the same group of people over time. And so we can look at, for example, what people said in January this year about vaccination 
just as you know vaccines were starting to be approved, whether they thought they get vaccinated and what they've actually done by August. And actually, it's a very strong predictor. So if you said in January 2021, you thought it was you know, very likely um, or probable that you would take a, 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 get the vaccine, that's a very strong predictor of vaccine uptake. And so that sort of information, you can then look at you know, what sort of barriers people see and so on. And, and, and certainly there is a group who are disaffected they, un- they distrust other people. They distrust the government, um, uh, and that comes through. Certainly, um, in the early stages of the vaccine rollout, people thought it was pretty fair. You know, they understood the rationale. You know, for you start with the elderly and people with disability and underlying health conditions. Uh, what's more recent times has happened is that people are not as convinced about the fairness of the vaccine rollout. You know, there's various stories about young people from certain schools, so on, getting yeah. preferential access or, you know, people sort of saying to jump the queue. And that sense of fairness is really in, in, important in this. I mean, it's my view is that uh, even after we're vaccinated, you know, the, the challenges of COVID uh, are not going to be over and governments are going to have to make some pretty tough decisions. The amount of money that's being spent is very high. Um, it's not likely to be sustainable. And we've got other challenges in the world which are confronting Australia with China and um, amongst others. And so governments are going to be needing, I think, to make tough decisions. And probably, well, I hope that we're making decisions which are in the long-term interest, as they've done during COVID. I mean, that is going to be one of the real challenges is how can we get away from that sort of short-term cycle of expedient policymaking um, when we really are facing, going to be facing challenges which are much more serious than, well, certainly on the economy, much more serious than we've been facing over the last decade or so. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because to do popular things doesn't necessarily dip into the sort of the trust bank, the credibility bank that governments have with people. But to do unpopular things, uh, you need to have credibility. You need to be seen to be acting in the longer-term national interest, even the medium-term national interest, even though it might cause some level of short-term pain. I mean, that has been essentially the secret, that you know, the kind of heart of representative government, that it actually works well when you have leadership that is not merely populist and responsive to what people always want but which has a uh, a, an overarching and particularly a temporally extended a longer term view of what is in the national interest and thus action to rebalance the budget for example everyone knows that that's not going to make you uh, not going to buy you a lot of votes but um, it is what we need our governments to do to broadly speaking to have you know have uh, spending policies that are broadly commensurate with with revenue policies broadly um, and don't get me wrong I'm not some sort of um, you know Friedmanite here I'm just making a sort of a general point about legitimacy and it's interesting that that equation that that mechanism does require trust it requires kind of mutual buy-in by by the populace and and the government and We've seen we're seeing a fair bit of that at the moment, but it's interesting when you think about it with with young people, because as you say, young people tend to be have have less trust in in governments. I wonder whether you think, as an economist, as much as as a sort of a social researcher here, whether you think that is a function of them also having less of a stake in in it. It's almost like a company in which they have 
either no or very few shares compared to the baby boomer generation, which own lots of shares and so have a great interest in in the protection of the status quo and the protection of the current distribution of property and wealth and the the, the ongoing maintenance of the the uh, you know the, the order as it is at the moment. Yeah, well, look, one of the things we do know from surveys is that each generation is different, but each generation is also the same. So young people tend to, you know, want to change the world. They're unhappy about certain things. Um, but we are going through a phase now we have um, a structural ageing of the population, mm-hmm. so, which is a great sign of success. Yeah? People are living longer, and so we have an ageing population. And we have young people who have been, and we've had a huge increase in wealth in Australia. I know that's been unequally distributed which is a, an issue and there's been rising you know, income inequality, inequality in assets even more and things like home ownership. It used to be the case that most Australians would own their own home in time and that provided a, a bedrock for their life um, and, and provided them with a decent living standard in retirement. Um, now, that could be disrupted by things like divorce, but um, mental health problems or so on. But generally speaking, that was the, the pathway. For young people, um, you know, while it's true that in many ways, I think you said the 2008 global financial crisis was kind of a paper effect in Australia, uh, it's true in aggregate, but young people were disproportionately affected by that. Um, and again, they're being disproportionately affected by what's going on at the moment. And so I think that there is a, a sense of, you know, if society does nothing for me, why should I do something for society? There must be a social compact. And you you can see it starting, the potential for it to start to play out in antisocial behaviour, in criminality. If, if society does nothing for you, well, people tend mm. to think, well, I might just take it from people who do have it. Yeah, and, and non-compliance would be, a you know, it's almost an early sign of that, wouldn't it? Non-compliance with health right. orders. It is, exactly. Yeah. And... If we look at, uh, in, in many ways, um, especially with the recovery of the stock market, um, which is, you know, as of today, very strong, um, you know, the wealth of many older people has gone up. Financial living standards have really improved in many ways. The mental health of people over 55 is higher than what it was in 2017. For young people, um, mental health is worse now than it was in 2017, and it's improved a little bit than what happened in the early stages of COVID, but it's quite negative um, in terms of things like financial hardship. Um, you know, um, there are broader effects of COVID in entrenching underlying fault lines and social disadvantage, but they've been particularly for young people. And the evidence that we're getting out of our polling is that young people are really starting to they, they had big increases in confidence in government during the early stages of COVID, but it's collapsed now. And it's sort of going back to what it was pre-COVID. I mean, I think that that is a real concern. And people are starting to see that the intergenerational compact may be begun to swing too far in favour of older generations and older people compared to younger people because um, for many younger people, they would see much of the, uh, the reasons for the lockdown to prevent, to, to protect 
uh, particularly older people, you know, pe- also people with disability or living with disability or other conditions, but particularly older generations. And they're starting to question, you know, what does this mean for me? And especially um, you know, it's starting to impact on schooling, university, mm-hmm. apprenticeships um, and so on. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about the effect of young people. I wonder whether you think and this is not inviting you to make a sort of a heroic change in, in government policy here, although you feel free to do so if you want to, Matthew, but I wonder whether you think the way, bearing in mind what you just said, all that all that very important, uh, those important observations about young people and the fact that uh, particularly before Delta, there was a very strong correlation between age and serious illness from from COVID. Relatively few young people were becoming seriously ill and dying. It's a little bit more um, sort of demographically distributed or distributed, I should say, uh, with the Delta uh, virus but, or the Delta variant. But I wonder whether you think we got the vaccine policy right by closing young people out of it for so long because, you know, there wasn't Pfizer and we saw what happened with the AstraZeneca thing and the age restrictions that came onto it and so forth. And young people who I think the evidence has shown since were more keen to step forward and get a jab in the arm than any other cohort. I mean, they, they are pretty much the ones who feel most keenly the removal of the ability to socialise. It's so much more critical when you were, when you were young. Uh, you know, I heard someone make the point on Q&A, for example, about, about not just socialising but Romance, for example, young, you know, the, the, the things that are really important to people as, the, as young adults, uh, when you get older, you, you might be happy to, you know, be home from work and just quietly work from home. But I just wonder sometimes whether we didn't, just, shouldn't have just had a, you know, first come, first served, whether we wouldn't have kind of got to at least where we are now and perhaps even higher levels of vaccination. It's a good question, and I think time takes a different sense when you're young, you know. Mm. When you're older, you think, oh, what well, does another month or two matter? But you know, when you're 17 or 18, um, you know. It's an eternity. And my daughter turns 17 tomorrow. She says, oh, she's not really having a birthday because she can't get a driver's licence because, you know, driving licence yeah. is suspended. I look at that and say, oh, well, what's the big deal? As a father, it's not a bad thing if it's another two or three months. But, you know, when you're 17, it, it just about turn 17, it matters. So I think that, um, look, I'm not an expert on the health side of vaccines, but I do think that it's pretty clear that on AstraZeneca that was comprehensively stuffed up. Yeah. 
And, yeah, and, and young people, yeah, they would have gone and got it because, I mean, partly for their own benefit um, and wanting to be able to out and socialise and protect themselves, but also they do want to protect other people. You know, they don't want to make their, their parents or their grandparents ill. So I think that you, you can see that in the, in the data where uh, the young people are, are starting to say, you know, they think they had a, particularly young people thought, increasingly thinking that the vaccine rollout's not been fair, not been fairly done. Um, and if you think of the vaccine as a sort of temic, the totemic thing, you know, this is okay. uh, uh, the silver bullet, <laughs> you know. Once you're vaccinated, you're pretty right. I mean, I know that's not completely true, but it's pretty much true, I think. It's, it certainly gives a very high level of protection. They're sort of missing out. And, and as, as you say, you know, younger people, older people in their own home, financially comfortable, and and look at all look at all of the policy. Yeah, look at all of the policy that that we have these battles about. You think about the last election. You know, um, talk about negative gearing, capital gains tax concessions, franking credits, uh, electricity policy, the refusal to do anything on climate change because of what it might do to electricity prices, or you know, ruin your weekend or whatever that ludicrous claim was. You know, and then you and then you look at the vaccine policy. And in both cases, you you basically got the older. Demographic, the older section of the population, which is the most capital rich, well resourced, looking after itself first. You know, yes, yeah, and, and young people are. You can see it again in the data. You know, on coal, on climate change. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying every young person's got the same view, but as a group, they're pretty concerned and and, and really worried about this and getting quite. Uh, I, I mean, it is a a, a feature of the young. You know, when you're young, you tend to be more passionate and and uh, get angry idealistic, about it, yeah. idealistic and wanted a better world. And, and long may that continue. Um, but, for example, social security policies have been very interesting because when they had the big increase, particularly in the um, job seeker payment, the, you know, the, the essentially unemployment benefit, a massively positive impact on the financial position of um, the poorest people in society. And that's been wound back. I mean, it's a bit higher than it was. Um, but again, young people are, you know, are disproportionately on those types of benefits. And so, again, it was a chance, I think, for government to have said, yeah, we recognise that the real value of these benefits have dropped. We recognise that um, you're being disproportionately affected. Um, they could have, they could have made a, a permanent increase. Um, and there, you know, it's sort of, Statements made about financial sustain, long-term financial sustainability, and so on, but it doesn't seem to affect the other policies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you could say, actually, you could you could throw into that. You know, this might sound like a bit of special pleading bias, but you could throw into that also the 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 lack of support for universities through this this period. You know, major employers, the third or fourth largest, depending on how it's counted and when it's counted, third or fourth largest export sector of the country, left effectively. On its own through this whole period, forty thousand jobs lost, universities closed, and who are, who are the university students? Overwhelmingly, they are young people who are being denied the education and the society associated with that education. Yes, yeah, and, and, and just another example of it. And education is becoming increasingly important. Mm. Um, yeah, and increasingly you know, expensive. That, you know, I, I'm not of the view that the, the only valuable education is provided through university. I think that the vocational sector is just as important and, and again, uh, it, it's been harder for people to get apprenticeships and, and 
Well, that, that, it's interesting that you, you raise that because one of the things I noticed in the survey, and this is from the 2019 data as I understand it, but 93% of Australians think universities should train people for the needs of the economy, for employers. I wonder what your version or what your assessment of that is. is I mean, to me, that sounds like the sort of data that you might, or the sort of figure that you might quote if you were arguing that universities need to be less on the ivory tower end of things yeah. and more on the kind of utilitarian vocational <laughs> training side of things. Anti-humanities, anti-arts, you know, anti-pure research. No, it, it, the, the, again, this might be a bit self-serving, but the British Academy of the Humanities did some studies on where a humanities degree leads you, doing classics, literature and history and philosophy. Uh, and they, they looked at, you know, the top people running major companies in the UK. Um, if, you know, people with a humanities background were disproportionately represented. You know, very few accountants are running major organisations. Um, actually, economists yeah. were underrepresented. Uh, quite a few engineers because, you know, engineering business and so on. Um, but, yeah, but so I think that, I mean, I personally think that the real value of universities is not to provide specific skills training. It's a bit, I mean, that's not quite true. I think, you know, medicine or uh, pharmacy or, or so on. But geology. geology. But, but I do think that the real value of the universities is, is about a better society, encouraging people to think and be well-educated. And it's not just in the labour market. Um, it makes people better parents, for example. And again, I'm not saying that only people with high education to be wonderful parents. It's absolutely not true. But, you know, the, the higher the education level of the parents, you know, they generally help them be good parents or volunteers or, you know, in a whole variety of ways. So I think that um, I guess there's a challenge here because you've had this massive growth of the university sector, um, partly international students, but also uh, domestic, probably over time, a downgrading of the vocational sector. So my view a bit is that you need to find the right balance. And, and it's a it's obviously a balance that government needs to find between um, the funding they and the support they provide to universities for the vocational side versus the other side. Um, but we do know that, you know, most people don't, in their jobs, they don't, they don't directly use what they learned at university. They go on to a whole variety of careers, particularly in social sciences, humanities, a broad-based science education would be the same. Um, um, you know, pe people go on. So for young people, you know, the, the online learning has been challenging, I think. Um, the pressure on universities does not help the quality of their university education. I think that's true. Universities made a lot of effort to support it, but it, it, is, it does have an effect. On the young people, well, especially when you've got that number of job losses. I mean, there are just there, there are no doubt cases where you know someone's someone's tutor or lecturer is just no longer yes. there anymore, and so they've you know they're having to sort of deal with someone else entirely, or that course is is now severely compromised as a result of that. And uh, th these are real world effects. Uh, it's um, I, I just think it's extraordinary. Even if you leave aside all the ideological frames, it's extraordinary that. Uh, in a crisis like this, when so much money has been ploughed into the economy to keep, you know, through JobKeeper and so forth, to keep employees associated with employers and, and to try and uh, have as much of the economy in good shape 
by the end of this, you know, by the time we get to the vaccination levels that we need and, and can start releasing all of these restrictions. And the universities have been left to wither to, to a large extent and it's felt very ideologically motivated. It's kind of ironic. I think ironic is the right word for it, that we're relying on the scientists to get us out of this pickle. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there was, there's also, of course, a, a, a a fair correlation between levels of education and vaccine take-up. We were talking about vaccine take-up before. Uh, your study shows that the um, nine out of ten Australians, or ninety-four percent, which is an extraordinarily high number, an encouragingly high number, uh, have now either been vaccinated or intend to be vaccinated. That's that's pretty encouraging, isn't oh, it? It's extremely encouraging, um, and it wasn't at all certain in the early days that that what would that's what would happen. And the evidence from other countries, I mean, Australia has been, well, slow to start. Um, you know, it, it, I do think that we're going to end up with a pretty high vaccination rate by international um, standards. And again, I think that, I, I keep going back to this, but I do think that that trust and social cohesiveness under, underlying it is really important. Now, the other thing that is worth saying, I think, is that, um, and related to this, is that there hasn't been a hardening of attitudes, for example, against migration. There's been a slight, less, slightly less support for migration, but it's, it's really held up. Um, and again, people are not hardening against um, migrants who are different than the majority in Australia. You know, so so we, uh, if we look at, um, for example, reports of discrimination, because that was one of the concerns. You know, with Trump going on about the China virus and can bring out the worst in people mm. these situations is that um, Asian Australians, uh, community attitudes towards Asian Australians have um, remained remarkably positive, actually, and they haven't got more negative. And experience, I mean, Asian Australians do experience the highest rates of discrimination. But again, uh, that went down initially during COVID, probably because people were stuck at home and there's this opportunity to experience discrimination when you're at home. But, you know, now when things start to open up, it's sort of, it's not higher than what it was pre-COVID. Um, and I think that that is a really important point. It's an Australian success story in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a success story about the intergenerational creeping success, if I can put it like that, of education, of, of, a, of a liberal education, of multiculturalism being entwined with the Australian self-identity with values. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull used to make the point Australia is the most successful multicultural nation in the world. Now, you know, I, I could understand what he was saying. Uh, I think there'd be some people in racial minorities who would who would contest it on the basis of their experience and they'd be very validly doing so. But I think it was he was sort of making it as a normative statement. He was he was arguing that it's it is true of where we've come from and it becomes truer the more we talk about it as a positive value. And there's some statistical backup for that in, in, in uh, these surveys. I think so. And, and you can track this long term um, and you, you can see um, my assessment of the data is uh, um, it, it, it blips up and down a bit, but there is a basically an upward trend. Yeah, Australians do have a sense of if people come to Australia, they want them to sign up to the values of Australia, um, but, but there also is uh, understanding of the diversity and, 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 and a valuing of it. And again, in the COVID period, I mean, that, that's what the reason I think the discrimination findings are so important is that there has been quite a debate about 
different groups not sticking to lockdown rules and ending up with uh, and social distancing rules and ending up with um, you know, higher rates of infection, particularly from certain um, countries and, and, and ethnic backgrounds. But people seem to have been able, on the whole, to understand some of the reasons for that to do with people's experiences before they came to Australia and what that might mean about authority, about the importance of languages and, and you know, if you don't speak English. Mm. Again, how they interpret troops being on the street for knocking on their door, for example, yeah. And, and also the consequences of casual employment and economic insecurity. Yeah, the work they were doing, the, the work these people would do. So they're, they're very often impossible for these people to work from home. They're doing uh, often, um, you know, casual work or shift work. They're needing to move around, which is which has put them in more vulnerable situations and also made them more likely to be trans, you know, carriers. And while you see that at the margins of society, um, the, the, so and I don't, I'm not, I don't have um, rose tinted glasses about this. I mean, I think that it's something we need to be continuing to be vigilant. Um, and the, the rates of discrimination and racism are too high. Yeah, undoubtedly against people in other countries, and certainly against First Nations. I think Turnbull's statement, Malcolm Turnbull's statement, you referred to, is a relative statement as well. Um, yeah, com- yeah, I think what you're saying really. Yeah, compared to other countries, it, it is a success story. Um, and it does appear that COVID's not going to upset that apple cart. One of the things that you also referred to a minute ago was, you know, like talking about um, multiculturalism was our attitudes. I suppose that invites the other aspect of it, the attitudes to other countries. We've seen declining trust, and I think Lowy Institute polls have, have shown this as well, declining levels of trust in China. In Australia, so Australia, Australians with plummeting sort of confidence that China is a is a, a sort of a, a net good in the world, at least the way it's uh, behaving at the moment. The, the numbers also show that there is very high support for the United States. Now, that's perhaps not surprising, but it is it is really quite high, and I, I guess it underpins why there's so much safety, both literally or at least sort of defensively, as Australia would see it, but also politically for the government, bearing in mind what we've just seen unveiled in the last two weeks, you know, this even deeper uh, strengthening of the defence partnership between Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom, this AUKUS agreement. Yeah, I think that's uh, – it's very interesting and um, uh, yeah, and, and also the Quad, you know. So, um, yeah, with yeah. country – I mean, UK and US, I guess, are countries that we would um, have a lot of – you would expect us, you know, certainly for some quad countries. I mean, it's not so. It, it, the history is different, I guess, and um, and you can you can see that. I think the the, the lowy polls are really terrific, and and they are very fo- much focused on Australia's views about the rest of the world. Um, and they have a really terrific website, which um, is also I'd encourage the listeners to have a look at. Um, it's a it's not as if uh, the ANU is the only ones doing this sort of work. Um, the lowy the Lowy is very interesting, and, and the Scanlon Foundation also do very interesting. There's a sort of um, a small group of us who are, are doing this kind of work, um, and one of the really important things which underneath, for what Australia thinks, um, anybody who's interested can access the underlying raw data and do their own analysis. So if somebody thinks we haven't done it right or they've got a different question they want to answer and you know, they've got some sort of interest in that and skills and they can access the data through the Australian Data Archive. And that's a really important transparency thing because we're talking about trust. So one of the things is trust in data um, and 
I believe that uh, data should be made available to people to do their own analysis if needed. We try and make it broadly accessible through what Australia thinks, and you know, to school children, to university students, to the public are just interested, to ministerial advisors, public servants, and so on. But you can actually go in and get the underlying data. If, if, if that's the thing that floats your boat, then you can get into it. And, um, and the university education can help you do that as well. Yes, and, and there's all, it's all explained there in terms of the methodology behind how this data is, is gathered or data are gathered. Yes, yes, it's all there. Um, So it's it's designed to be totally transparent in where the data comes from, what the questions were, how they were phrased, how the analysis has been done. And, you know, and if people do other analysis and say they come to a slightly different conclusion than us, then that's great. And if we've made an error somewhere along the line, you know, we'll fix it up. So that's part of this process of scientific discovery. They say about being a researcher, um, you have to be prepared to be publicly wrong. (laughs) <laughs> and and I think that yeah, I really believe in that. You know, uh, yeah. If you get further information, what do you, what do you do? I mean, I change my mind. Yeah, I've changed yeah. my view. No, that's very well put. The um, the the whole thing's quite a collaborative exercise, isn't it? There are other people involved, and and as you say, other organisations. There are so um, there are a, a group of academics um, who's um, really committed in this space, and there is uh, Ian Professor Ian McAllister. Professor Tony Mackay, who's been involved long-term in around many of the studies, uh, Tony particularly around the world values and other surveys, uh, Professor Nick Biddle, Dr. Jill Shepherd. Um, so there's quite a, a collection of people who are, who, who've made a long-term investment in this space. This isn't something that you can just dip in and out. It takes people who are prepared to really commit and to build the expertise and to have the discipline to keep going back and keep asking the questions. It's quite exciting during COVID. Yeah, other times it's less dramatic things going on. So it does require a real commitment and long-term investment. And that's an investment that the Australian National University has been able to make in its particular role as a national university. Final question, does it bring to your mind, uh, and this is sort of a question without notice, I I suppose, inviting you to um, think about the next election. I'm not going to ask you to predict who wins it, but does it highlight for you any of the areas where the two sides, the two major sides, obviously, will be wise to go or not go or will need to, you know, very strongly address emergent concerns in the electorate, particularly in this post-COVID So it's a good thing that you're not asking me to predict the um, election because it's not my (laughs) skill set at all. And, you know, what I tend to to think important, I mean, I'm not, you know, it doesn't always what the electorate thinks, but I do think that the path out of COVID and the future society that we need, um, that we want to have and that we need is going to be really crucial. And I'd like to see that sort of vision coming out of a a really serious crisis. Uh, I wouldn't, I I think we shouldn't forget the bushfires that we had and sort of recede into the past a bit, but they were really dramatic in, what's it, late 2019, early 2020. And these issues of environmental management, climate change, um, you you can see the Prime Minister's talking about it. So I think these issues of inequality within society and the type of society that we want to have post-COVID, to what extent it's made people rethink some of their priorities. And that I hope we'll see from our politicians, that um, that leadership, um, so that we can build um, a fairer and better Australia. It doesn't mean it's not been good over the last decade, but I think there's an opportunity here. Yeah, and that fair and better point is a really good one to sort of finish on in a sense because I suppose what you're saying there is that these data show 
particularly we talked about this a bit before, but these data show up, you know, those um, relatively lower levels of trust amongst those who have less of an economic toehold. Uh, and that, of course, is mostly younger people, but not exclusively. And so distribution of, of, of wealth and opportunity is a crucial aspect of any stable, prosperous and 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 viable uh, polity going forward. So that's that that also is something that governments will need to have a narrative line about. Yes, and and, and the balance between yeah the, the balance between different groups in society will become, I think, one of the real issues on which they will need to have really serious policy consideration. Professor Matthew Gray, thanks so much for spending time with us discussing this really quite fabulous resource, very rich data set, um, and for explaining how listeners can can also get into that themselves. So thanks for coming on Democracy Sausage uh, once again. You're welcome, Matt. Thank you. And thank you. That's it for Democracy Sausage this week. I might just also finish by thanking Angus Blackman, uh, executive producer of this barbecue-based GabFest, and, of course, to the Crawford School of Public Policy for its fantastic administrative support. That's it for now. See you next week.